Hey guys, Boardwalk Talk here. I'm Silas Rhodes. I'm Landry Worth. I'm Anna Larissa. And I'm Addie Thrasher. Today for our May 10th edition, we are going to be talking about eugenics, the history of it, and the modern bioethical implications involved with genetic technology. By the end of this segment, we hope that you will be able to be well informed on the topic of eugenics and be able to contribute more to the bio- bioethical debates involving genetics. Okay, before we tackle the ethical dilemmas of genetics, let's start with what eugenics is. According to Britannica, eugenics is the selection of desired heritable characteristics in order to improve future generations, typically in reference to humans. So it's essentially encouraging production amongst people with supposedly desirable traits and discouraging production among those with supposedly undesirable traits. Yeah, the word eugenics stems from Greek and means good meaning. When did the eugenics movement start? Well, the term eugenics was originally coined in 1883 by British explorer and natural scientist Francis Galton, who happened to be Charles Darwin's cousin. Oh, that makes sense. We learned all about Charles Darwin and his social theory of survival of the fittest in history. Yeah, Darwin's work propelled the justification of some American laws and consolidation of wealth in the early 1900s due to social Darwinism. Wow, it's interesting to connect the dots and see the close relationship between the two founders of these movements. Yeah, so officially, eugenics started with Galton's work, but eugenics-like work has been around for a long, long time. We'll tackle a semi-complete history of eugenics next. Welcome back. Now we're going to discuss the history of eugenics leading up to Galton's work and even some past that. In fact, the earliest talk on eugenics comes from Plato over 2,000 years ago in 387 BC when his book The Republic talked about a society that improves itself through selective breeding. So the next mention of eugenics was an Italian poet and philosopher, Tommaso Campanella's work The City of the Sun in 1693. In this book, he described a utopian society that only allowed the socially elite to procreate. Eugenics and the thought of keeping bloodlines pure can even be seen through Europe's royal families. Eugenics and inbreeding are not the same things, but the royal family's selective breeding choices created a lot of weird genetic disorders that can be seen through generations and can be viewed through the lens of selective breeding. For example, the Habsburg family had the Habsburg lip that passed through 23 generations as a result of inbreeding. The Habsburg Charles III of II of Spain couldn't even chew his food because it was so bad. Yeah, even some British kings have been proven to go mad due to inbreeding. In fact, George III, who lost the American colonies, had manic episodes caused by genetic diseases. Doesn't that just kind of say that some people have always had thoughts on selective breeding despite there being no concrete genetic science to back it up at the time? Absolutely, and according to Britannica, the founder Galton always had these thoughts, but was only able to label them as eugenics after Gregor Mendel's genetic research with the pea pods. Yeah, in 1865, Gregor Mendel discovered modern genetics through a series of experiments with pea pods that showed that each physical trait was the result of a combination of two units, now known as genes, and could be passed from one generation to another. And it wasn't until years later that Galton found eugenics because he needed Mendel's research to prove his thoughts on genes. So through eugenics, Darwin preached good evolution in society through selective reproduction. He determined that people controlled the future of the human race this way. 
From Galton and Darwin's work, a eugenics language was born which led to terms like positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics is promoting the reproduction of good stock, while negative eugenics is prohibiting marriage and breeding between defective stock. In the early 1900s, many countries adopted this line of thinking and passed legislation prohibiting certain marriages and reproduction. In London, Galton and Carl Pearson did some research together, and Pearson concluded that the higher birth rate of the poor was a threat to the superior upper class. He shares some of the blame for the discredit of eugenics later on. Eugenics was first seen in America and Connecticut in 1896 by way of marriage laws, which made it illegal for epileptic or feeble-minded people to marry. Charles Davenport, a biologist, and Harry Laughlin, a former teacher interested in breeding in 1910, founded the Eugenics Record Office, the ERO, at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island in order to improve the natural, physical, mental, and temperamental qualities of the human race. Despite this, eugenics in America didn't really take off until after World War I. A fear that the good stock of Americans would die out spread across the nation, and and anti-immigration laws were passed as a result. In fact, Laughlin was sent to Europe to determine which countries had good stock and which had quote-unquote bad stock. Is this where the immigration quota started? Yes, the immigration quota of 1924, which limited the number of immigrants from certain quote-unquote undesirable countries, is an example of one of the methods the United States government took to control the reproductive pool in the country. The eugenics movement in the U.S. focused on eliminating negative traits, which were concentrated in poor, uneducated, and minority populations, according to Laughlin. And in an attempt to prevent these groups from procreating, eugenicists helped drive legislation for their forced sterilization. And the first state to enact a sterilization law was Indiana in 1907, quickly followed by California and 28 other states by 1931. In 1920, Laughlin had convinced enough people of his science that 3,200 people were involuntarily sterilized, and by 1929, the number tripled, and by 1938, more than 30,000 people were involuntarily sterilized. Laws resulted in the forced sterilization of over 64,000 people in the United States. That's terrible. Yeah, it really is. And we even have an audio clip with us that shows the account of Charlie Follett, a guy from California who was involuntarily sterilized in the 1930s. 1945, California's Sonoma State Home. Charlie Follett, a 14-year-old ward, is singing in a field when he's ordered inside. Dorsey shot me with some kind of medicine. Supposed to bend the nerves. Then the next thing I heard was snip, snip. And that was it. Did they tell you what they were doing to you? No. They didn't have to tell him. He knew. A sterilization by force. How did you know what it was? Well, because, see, there's been others in there that had it before me. The other boys at the home had warned him how much it would hurt. Well, when they'd done this side here, it seemed like they were pulling the whole insides out. The 1930s through the 1950s were the heyday of the eugenics movement in the United States. That's really sad. And what makes it worse is that even the Supreme Court found the programs that forced sterilization legal. In Buck v. Bell in 1927, the state of Virginia sought to sterilize Carrie Buck for giving birth to a baby out of wedlock. Some even suggest that she was raped. Supreme Court Justice Wendell Holmes stated, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. 
three generations of imbeciles is enough. This decision legitimized the various sterilization laws in the United States. And not only was eugenics seen in legislation, but it was also seen in the academics and culture of the 1920s and 1930s. During this period, the American Eugenics Society was founded and many more were too. Yeah, these people competed in competitions at fairs and exhibitions for the fittest family and better baby. Even movies and books promoted eugenic principles. A 1917 movie called The Black Stork, which was based on a true story, depicted the doctor that allowed a syphilitic, syphilitic infant to die after convincing the child's parents that it was better to spare society of one more outcast as a hero. That's terrible. Yeah, it really is. I guess it's not that surprising that Hitler, unfortunately, drew some of his inspiration from American eugenics laws. Yeah, in fact, California's program was so robust that the Nazis turned to the state for advice in perfecting their own efforts. Hitler even proudly admitted to following the laws of several American states that allowed for the prevention of reproduction of the unfit. Yeah, and when Germany went way beyond sterilization and tried to eliminate the Jewish and non-Aryan races, the U.S. finally became concerned over its involvement and support of eugenics. Many people denounced the ERO and the works of eugenicists. And by the end of World War II, it was so stigmatized that its previous supporters now called it a failed pseudoscience. The government even officially shut down its sterilization programs and came clean about all they had done. Yeah, in the Senate hearings in 1973, Senator Ted Kennedy revealed that thousands of U.S. citizens had been sterilized. This officially shut down all the programs in America, but some other countries, like China, still support eugenics laws to ensure the genetic makeup of their future generations. So to recap, eugenics went from being pretty popular to being highly stigmatized? Yeah, and that's why modern genetic science has a lot of bioethical implications. We will cover those opinions after the break. After the downfall of eugenics, as people used to know it, medical genetics evolved into encompassing genetic screening and counseling to fetal gene manipulation. There have been discussions around the treatment of adults suffering from hereditary disorders. Well, what does this mean exactly? Since there's no effective way yet to cure adults, many people with diseases such as hemophilia choose to undergo screening so that they can learn the chances of their offspring having the disease as well. Yeah, some couples choose to adopt, and some even choose to terminate pregnancies that involve a genetically disabled child. These developments have reinforced the eugenic aim of identifying and eliminating undesirable genetic material. This is where some of the concern comes in for modern genetic technology. Some people think it has the potential to greatly alter our society by providing a backdoor of sorts to eugenics under the guise of medicine. Absolutely. Since the gene treatments that would be available to people would likely be very expensive, there would be no reason for the cost to be lowered. Yeah, and we can see a similar scenario playing out in the medicine industry, especially with EpiPens, a life-saving device used to prevent anaphylactic shock for people with severe allergic reactions. And on top of the cost differential, getting rid of harmful genes has led to the rise of the new eugenics movement. New technology like genetic screening has raised a lot of concerns. Yeah, some people believe that genetic screening and editing is not that distant from what Galton implied in 1909 when he described eugenics as the study of agencies under social control which may improve or impair future generations. I think before we get into the debate over the ethics of genetic screening and editing through the lens of eugenics, we should first discuss what genetic screening is and entails. 
Yeah, sounds good. So basically, according to the United States National Library of Medicine, genetic testing is a type of medical test that identifies and changes in chromosomes, genes, or proteins, and the results of a genetic test can confirm or rule out a suspected genetic condition or help determine a person's chance of developing or passing on a genetic disorder. At this moment, more than 1,000 genetic tests are currently in use, and more are being developed. So what exactly do genetic tests do? Well, so there are multiple types of tests. There are molecular genetic tests, chromosomal genetic tests, and biochemical genetic tests. Molecular genetic tests, or gene tests, study single genes or short links of DNA to identify variations or mutations that lead to a genetic disorder. Chromosomal genetic tests analyze whole chromosomes or long links of DNA to see if there are large genetic changes, such as an extra copy of a chromosome that causes a genetic condition. Biochemical genetic tests, on the other hand, study the amount or activity level of proteins, and abnormalities in either can indicate changes to the DNA that can result in genetic disorder. Although they all test for different things, the tests all can signal a genetic abnormality that could cause an issue down the line. This opens up the debate on whether or not these kinds of tests are ethical, because some people feel like they are, in a sense, selecting to keep their child if they would have these abnormalities, while others feel like it is an essential test to have. Yeah, according to a survey conducted from people who had genetic tests, 93% wanted to keep all their carry information. Furthermore, 99% wanted to know about medically actionable conditions that put them at risk for conditions like breast or colon cancer or heart muscle condition called cardiomyopathy. What does this mean? This means that most individuals feel that access to knowledge empowers them to make inf- informed medical decisions. Some people like the... O- option of having the ability to test genes because according to Carolyn Richards, a geneticist, some participants had a defect in the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes that substantially increases a person's risk to develop breast cancer or some other cancers. And knowing this information allows individuals to be closely monitored by medical screening procedures and eligible for potentially preventative treatments such as surgery. It also provides information for relatives who might want testing. Many people feel like knowing is better than not knowing. And one of those people is Sherry Ungerleider who is with us today to discuss her experience of genetic testing and her experience of raising a son with Tay-Sachs disease, a single gene mutation that is fatal. Welcome. Yes, welcome, Sherry. How was having a son with Tay-Sachs a challenge for you and your family? It was really scary because we knew that there was something going on. Sherry and Jeff Ungerleiter's first child, Evan, had Tay-Sachs, a fatal genetic disease. Children like Evan appear normal at birth but soon deteriorate. It's horrible. These children go blind and deaf. They can't move on their own. They can't express what they're feeling. On a good day, he would have two dozen seizures. There was nothing that we could do for Evan except keeping him happy, out of pain, not suffering. There is nothing worse than knowing that your child is going to die before their fifth birthday. How did living with and losing Evan affect your decision with having kids and genetic testing going forwards? After Evan, Sherry and Jeff Ungerleiter terminated one Tay-Sachs pregnancy and had three healthy children. Sherry is now a speaker and advocate for screening. I believe knowledge is power. I loved Evan more than anything. He's my first child. And if there was any way I could have spared him, I would have. Thank you, Sherry, for speaking with us today. Yes, thank you. 
Sherry's point of view, however, is not the only point of view. There are some challenges presented with genetic testing. One of the biggest challenges in clinical genome testing is how to determine whether a change in in a gene is actually disease-causing or not. Some believe that although we have the ability to sequence a patient's genome, it isn't clear that this is something that should be done. Some believe that choosing to pick and choose that choosing to pick and choose kids is saying that different is bad and disabilities are bad. One person who is here to share her experience with us today is Rebecca Coakley, President Obama's ex-chief diversity officer, who also has achondroplasia or dwarfism. Thanks for talking with us today, Rebecca. How is your life with a disability? In many ways, Rebecca and Patrick Coakley live the American dream. Jackson is seven, Kaya is four, and the last edition is Kendrick. It's never boring. We have a great life. I had the pleasure of growing up in a very strong community of little people. I was literally born and raised into the disability rights movement. Rebecca is the second generation of her family with achondroplasia, the most common form of dwarfism and is an advocate for people with disabilities. How has your work been and how has it affected your views on genetic testing? I was in the White House for two and a half years as President Obama's Chief Diversity Officer. It was an incredible experience. In August of 2017, she published an editorial about genetic engineering and prenatal diagnosis. So as the testing becomes more and more available, obvious fear is that people will abort kids like that cute girl riding the scooter outside because of what they don't know. (laughs) That my children may end up being the last generation of people like them. I think we can look back historically and it's scary. Despite her fears, Rebecca Coakley says reproductive choices must always be personal and that it's important to remember Eugenics laws prevented people with disabilities from making these kinds of decisions for themselves. As a woman who is very pro-choice and believes that that's a fundamental right, it is hard to talk about the fact that people are going to abort kids like me. That's why having conversations like this is so important to get out there to show people that we have a life worth living and a life with dignity. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for sharing your story with us today. Yes, thank you. People with views similar to Rebecca's fear that with genetic testing comes the future of designer babies and potentially getting to play God and pick and choose the traits of your child. It raises questions about what is natural, or rather, whether natural selection will or should become deliberate selection. It has a lot of people concerned that history will repeat itself in a bad way. The ethics of this situation are very, very complicated and walk a fine line between doing good and eugenics. Two people concerned about history repeating itself are Dr. Wendy Chung and Dr. Ronald Wapner of Columbia University. Welcome. Dr. Chung, why are you concerned about the direction genetic testing could take looking through the lens of eugenics? Genetics researcher Wendy Chung has seen screening spare families from horrible suffering. 31.3 kilos, okay, you can step out now. But its rapid expansion has her wondering. Okay, sit up for me for just a second. I've got a lot of patients that have many of the genetic disorders that we could identify through the cell-free DNA. My heart works very hard. Yes, it does. It needs to, knowing that I have Turner syndrome. Girls with Turner syndrome. 
Some of them will have structural differences in the way their heart is formed and differences in the way their ovaries work. I'm sure there's been ups and downs, but that's normal. Yeah. You eat a lot of chips? I'm sort of addicted to them. Ah. They're perfectly healthy. Who's to say that that's a disease? It's a difference. Sure. Is it something that you can still be happy, well-adjusted, productive member of our community? Of course. Is they buy into that idea that they need to do as much as they can to ensure a healthy child. When there's a genetic problem with their fetus, the knee-jerk reaction is, it started with Tay-Sachs, so it must be the same. And so automatically they start thinking about ending that pregnancy because if it weren't bad, why would you have tested me for this in the first place? And Dr. Wapner, what is your concern and view on the matter? Everyone agrees that if it's a severe and profound disorder, we should screen for it. But the discussion that we need to have is where's our technology taking us? A new we consider our options as individuals and as a society. There is also the shadow of history. No matter what we do, the one line we should never cross is this always has to be voluntary. It should never be a mandate that you have to have genetic screening or testing. We have to be incredibly on our guard that we're not simply looking at people and saying, I've decided your life is not worth living. This has happened before, and as our science gets more powerful, we shouldn't let it happen again. Thank you both for joining us today. Yes, thank you both. Well, guys, that wraps it up for us today. We hope you have learned about the different point of views about modern eugenics and the history of it. We hope you can now participate in the bioethical discussions involving this topic. And we hope to see you again soon. This is Boardwalk Talk signing off.